Remember what that means? Everything. Anglothese. Gettle's gone. Oh my god, you people have just failed me. Failed me utterly. Congratulations, Scotland. We have just gone full brigadier. That just explains so much of my childhood to me. Research purposes. It's super important. I hear an awful lot of judgment in your voice. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the two-year anniversary edition of Anglophies. It's episode 25, and we've been babbling at you once a month for two years, and you keep coming back, and that's awesome. Hi, I'm Raiden. I'm Alina. And I'm Kaylee. And we are joined today by our senior Comic-Con correspondent, Maya, who can be found on Twitter at Papaya Junebug. Hello. And we're so happy to see have you here. See you. We don't see. Never mind. Hi, Maya. How you doing? I know it's super early. I'm pretty great. Yeah, it's bright and early here on the West Coast. So apologies if I sound like I just woke up because I did. But we really appreciate you being here because the scheduling for this episode has been fun. Oh, yeah. And so have the technical problems. Oh my god, yes. Uh, we're, we're doing this on credit from the avocado, from the podcast gods, and we are each going to be sacrificing an avocado or whatever the Scottish moral equivalent of an avocado is. We still don't know what that is. Apparently it's not sheep testicles. It could be a muffin. <laughs> I, I only have muffins in the house right now. My parents are away, so I've been very responsible with the food shopping. <laughs> Adulting, doing it right. I, I didn't. We, I didn't drink two liters of chocolate milk. <laughs> no, certainly not. Yeah, never. I, this may be biased, but also in line with our episode today. But Kaylee, I suspect the Scottish equivalent of, avoca- of avocado probably, probably has some sort of alcohol content in it. <laughs> you would assume correctly, I believe. <laughs> go. There you go. Um, so the general topic of today's episode is accuracy in our media consumption. Or lack thereof. Lack yeah. thereof. And when do we care and when do we not care? And I know that Maya has very womanfully made it through the first season of Rain. Oh, not just the first season. I am fully caught up on this show now. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, I did that for you guys. Yeah. <laughs> show man, it's it's Gossip Girl in the French Renaissance. It it's sounds awesome. Spectacular! It's spectacular. Oh, uh, it's a train wreck of beautiful proportions. Yes, Mary Queen of Scots with a very British accent. Oh yes. Australian. Also, she's <laughs> short and dark haired. So, you know, that casting worked out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that that reminds me of when Paul Bettany talks about being cast as Chaucer. Oh, God. <laughs> it's on the commentary. He's like, and then you made the director sends you a package of research. The first you know, page of which talks about how Chaucer was short, fat, and black haired. And then you just chuck it all out the window because <laughs> you're yeah, a lanky blonde. <laughs> referred to the show as A Knight's Tale for Television, which... <laughs> Is in some ways accurate. Only A Night's Tale was awesome, and this is terrible. <laughs> um, I beg to differ. This is kind of awesome the farther you get in, but it might be the Stockholm Syndrome talking. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. But, I mean, one thing that I talk a lot about in my reviews on Smart Bitches is when a book is just blatantly, like, chucking the historical accuracy out the window... And it can be something as little as a Viking woman is cutting up potatoes to put in her stew for the evening, which, no, she did not. She did not do that. There were no potatoes in the 900s in Norway. That is not a thing that happened, and that is why this particular thing is called potato rage. (laughs) (laughs) And... Or 
it can be like Grace Burroughs, who is an author who I really like in general. Um, her, the attitudes of her characters tend to be very modern. Like, sure, an, an Earl is totally just going to marry the woman he hired as his housekeeper, even though she's not really of the servant class, but she was working as his housekeeper when he met her and he's going to marry her and everything's going to be totally fine with that and everyone's going to be like no it seems legit <laughs> you know what it was for me it's the medieval woman using a word teenager to refer to somebody oh yeah <laughs> no. no i i so normally i like have like very low quality like standards for especially for regencies like i'll keep reading even if it gets ridiculous but i remember reading one book where they talked about the hero who was like a duke picking up the girl and carrying her like a football which is when i just put it down <laughs> just like no 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 i'm done although at some point in this discussion we should talk about you know balancing accuracy versus like actual accuracy versus what readers expect in order to create the right atmosphere for them because right. those are two very different things yeah and i think it's an interesting discussion to have yeah, yeah. No, I agree. Yeah, but I mean, like earlier, earlier books when research was not as easy as it was, like you actually had to go to libraries and know what books you were looking for, and you needed to have more specialized research skills than you need now when you have the entire internet at your perusal. Yeah, I feel like at Which, this point... Yeah. You, you still need skills to be able to separate out the actual information from the load of shit. But that's, that's always been true. But it's still just generally easier. You don't even need to put on pants. <laughs> and that is always a plus. Yeah, in the world of Google and, you know, other Google Scholar, all that sort of stuff, I feel like it's we can't, you know, let as much slide these days. Yeah. And if if you're not going to worry so much about the accuracy, like again, Grace Burroughs is is an author that this comes up with for me. I'm sorry, I've worked a lot this week and I'm a little uh, um is that her writing and her characters are so interesting that I'm like, well, okay. He's strutting around his estate in just his shirt sleeves, and he basically left his cravat uh, hanging on a tree somewhere. But I really like reading about these people, so I'm just going to let it slide, and it's not going to take me out of the story too much. I'm just going to go with it, because she has the skills to pull it off. Yeah, I feel like that seems to be the big deciding factor, um, especially in like historical books, is how much am I enjoying the characters? It'll like determine how much I'm willing to let slide, and suspend my reality uh you remember in pride and prejudice the 2005 movie the scene at the end where darcy is heathcliffing on the moors in <laughs> you know open shirt and coat and the director and costumer you know when they quoted they'll basically say yeah he's basically naked by <laughs> right. and regency so standards yeah and, and the fact that they're both like yes this is like, there's no way that this conversation would have happened in reality. Mm -hmm. But that, especially with Darcy, when we first see him, he's got the super elaborate vet and every, he's buttoned up and starched all the shit. And as we see him through the movie, he gets incrementally looser. The cravat knot is a little bit less elaborate. It's not quite as tight. And that, that was a deliberate choice that they made. Yeah, it's letting the historical inaccuracy work for you in the terms of characterization. Yeah. And I will defend that movie to the death because I think Matthew McFadden was perfection as Darcy. I loved him. Apparently that's an unpopular opinion on the No, internet. he definitely hit Not the... Not unpopular here. I loved him. Super, <laughs> super socially awkward Darcy. Like... Like I just, I just, I don't know. I don't know how to person. I don't know. <laughs> I just I love can't. Matthew McFadyen in general. He was so great in Spooks. Yeah, he was. I've never seen Spooks. And Death <gasps> at a Funeral. Oh, <laughs> oh Maya. 
I know. I had a friend who was watching Spooks, like, marathoning it, and I just never got around to it. I I watched the first season for our spy episode, which was uh, six, seven, ten months ago. And then during my period of unemployment this summer, I mainlined the next seven seasons. <laughs> and got to the Richard Armitage years, so... Oh, Richard Armitage. <laughs> Good for me. <laughs> word for a lot of just like, okay, <laughs> this is ridiculous, but we'll go with it. I think that's part of your level of enjoyment as well. If something is good in other areas and it's less accurate in terms of historical or scientific content, I don't tend to mind. But if it's one of those stories where I'm supposed to believe that these are super accurate stories or they're super smart people doing super scientific things and they're just being incredibly stupid and it doesn't make sense, it takes me out of the story immediately. I know that it's kind of a common sci-fi trope for people, or for bad sci-fi writers to just make every single character really, really stupid to move the plot forward even when they're supposed to be smart. It also depends on, like, your area (laughs) of expertise, because, like, I find it extremely difficult these days to read anything that, like, purports to know a lot about the brain and then doesn't, (laughs) Um, just because that's what I do. And so the, the, like, more you know about it, the, like, less you can tolerate inaccuracy in things. (laughs) Um, That depends. That does depend. Given that my favorite new show of the fall season is How to Get Away with Murder. Oh, God. <laughs> and the reason that I love it so much is because I get to yell a lot on Twitter about how this is not this is not law school. This is not how the law works. Oh, you almost got to a legit legal thing and then you fucked it up. Yeah, Just but that's last... Shonda. I feel like Shonda works. Yeah, that's a Shonda Rhimes kind of staple, but I also think that there is a certain level of camp to that show that it's also very aware of, where they're like, you know what, this would never happen, but there's pretty people taking their shirts off and Viola Davis is being brilliant, so just go with it. Exactly. Like, and Dean Thomas from Harry Potter. Yeah, like, look, girls, look how Dean Thomas grew up. Yeah, Dean Thomas grew up well. He's the puppy. He has a very excellent <laughs> face. I managed to watch that whole pilot without realizing that was Dean Thomas. <laughs> How's his American accent? It's not bad. It's, it's not bad. Um, you you may have also remembered him from the Tom Hiddleston televised performance of Coriolanus, in which he got you know yelled at by Tom Hiddleston, kind of a lot. <laughs> I didn't see that. Boy, sweet boy. Episode sixteen point five. Raiden and I did a little. Recap. Yep. Nice that you had the number at the top of your head. I'm impressed. I was listening to it. <laughs> <laughs> you did a Tom Hiddleston fix. Right. Um, but also in How to Get Away with Murder. 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 How to Get Away with Murder in Jersey is just do it. No one get. No one get <laughs> Um, is that it's been four, five episodes, and we've had some pretty explicit gay sex in three of those episodes. Okay, I need to catch it's up on It's a reference shit. to rimming. Oh my god. That's I'm impressive. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I'm and impressed. I, I don't know, like, what Shonda did to bribe ABC standards and practices, but I approve. <laughs> whatever hey, whatever Brian Fuller has done to bribe NBC's standards and practices to get whatever they managed on. Yeah. I don't know. Two of them are in cahoots. To be fair, no, it, blood isn't the problem, remember? It's butt crap. Right. <laughs> I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> um... So, yes, How to Get Away with Murder, you want a fun Thursday night? I don't care if you watch the show. Just watch the Twitter stream, especially from Legal Twitter. <laughs> I know there are certain members of Legal Twitter who are like, I can't watch the show because of the blatant ethics violations. I just can't. Because, sure, trooping your entire <laughs> class into talk to your brand new client 
thus making the conversation <laughs> not privileged anymore. That's bad. That is going to get you disbarred. But it happened in Legally Blonde. (laughs) (laughs) It's Legally Blonde is totally real law, right? Yeah, only, you know what? Some of the laws referenced, like, Legally Blonde references Massachusetts Rule 303, which allows law students to represent people in courts. They didn't really apply it right, but that's an actual thing. Like, Legally Blonde, not that bad. In terms really? Of, really? That's amazing. I didn't realize that. You know, it never occurred to me to question how much of that was real. I just sort of assumed that it was all, like, movie no. law. No. I mean, having first-year interns, not going to happen. But generally, no, Legally Blonde, not that bad. <laughs> There's something quite comforting about that, actually. What other ones would you say are, are good for the legal Twitter? Yes. Yeah. So, yes. How to get away with murder? Terrible research. Fuck of a lot of fun. And I think, I, I think it's because of, if it's right. fun, I, I think that's the thing. If it's fun, people yeah. will tend to get away with a lot more things. Mm-hmm. Something like, oh, I don't know, every show Kevin Williamson's ever made after Vampire Diaries, not fun. Therefore, <laughs> no. when people do crazy murder cult things, which I've talked about before, I know, and I'm not going to get started again. But you you notice it more. Your your draw your eyes are drawn to it more because there's nothing else to hold your attention. But I think that's one of the reasons I tend to get really picky with accents is because it's the center of a performance in so many ways. Mm-hmm. And I have like leeway with certain ones, like a wobbly English accent now and then because it's actually harder to do than most people think it is. And period dramas, no matter where they're set, everyone tends to do an English accent anyway. Even yeah. if it's set in like revolutionary France, I don't know why. Yeah, in Rain, there is one person with a French accent, and it is confusing as hell because that's the everyone DM, else is the, the Phantom of the Opera movie as well. Miranda Richardson is like, well, I don't know who you people are, but I'm an actress, and I'm going to do a French accent. So. <laughs> Even though presumably, as a French person, she wouldn't have had an accent when speaking in French, and we're doing translation convention. It never actually makes sense if you think about it. Yeah, I know that Russell Crowe for Gladiator... He wanted to to do a Spanish accent because his character was from Spain, and Ridley Scott was like, that's just going to confuse people. In fairness, no one in that film is doing accents well, and I love that movie. (laughs) Except for Oliver Reed, but we're just glad he's sober. Right. And then you have, like, the Borges. And then he wasn't. Where most of the actors playing, you know, the Spanish Borgia family are British and then Francois Arnaud is Quebecois Canadian. <laughs> but he's so hot that nobody cares. Right. And, like, no one's going to tell Jeremy Irons what to do. Right. Yeah, but the thing that gets me is when they're all doing English accents but in order to differentiate who the plebs are and who the the royals are, or the, the upper class, you will have them doing, like, a northern English accent. Like a Newcastle accent, or whatever, you know, a Sean Bean accent. Mm-hmm. And that's the way you have to differentiate in class. And I think it's really fascinating that we're still sticking to the very archaic British way of deciding class for all of our period dramas, no matter where they're set. Right. Well, I think you get a Scottish accent in there, but that usually is for comic relief. Right. Yeah. I think Rome did that really well that it wasn't just the the northern accent that they went for for the plebs it was like the the lower class london types like you can yeah, definitely actually tell well okay you know what though the most hilarious thing about rome is that the one italian actress they had was playing a german slave yeah <laughs> why not yeah <laughs> sure um, there's so much nudity in that show to care about accents let's be honest yeah, exactly. We're all here for the boobs. I mean, people people tell me, as someone who does research into Roman life and clothing, that that when I tell them, look, I know the costumes on the Tudors are not accurate. Not How about you get the stick out of your butt and relax a little bit? Especially since as the show goes on, it gets closer and closer to a more generally accurate concept like the first season there's a lot of I don't even know what you were going for there I don't and then 
I used to be unhappy with the costumes on the tutors until I saw Rain, so and now I'm Rain. real. Yeah. We'll get there to there in a minute. And then people tell me, well, like, the tutor era isn't your area, and if you had a show that that bastardized Roman costuming as much as this bastardized tutor costuming, you'd be just as angry. And I go, no, I had that show. It was called Rome. It was awesome. And I didn't care. Like, they got the hair right. They got the jewelry right. And the reason that they didn't stick with the accurate Roman idea is because it doesn't adhere to the modern HBO idea of what is sexy. But they got the accessories and they got sort of the general... And the wigs. Oh my god, yeah, all the wigs. The wigs. <laughs> they got this the, the sort of general concept right. And also, it was clearly a slightly alternative universe in which this is where the costumes worked and this is how the history worked. And it's not quite the same as what is the truth for various reasons, some of which are legit and some of which are stupid and the same thing is with the tutors so how about you get the stick out of your butt and then go see rain and how those costumes were pulled out of the limited clearance rack well that's one of the things as well is, is putting together that kind of costuming is expensive mm-hmm. oh and yeah most of those shows particularly a cw show you should just be glad when they have craft services let alone costuming yeah but see the thing is she's wearing like oscar de la renta <laughs> In like some of these in episodes, tar- in tar- oh. she find her the she swear, I swear to God, there's an episode where she meets with the Scottish nobles, who all have Scottish accents, and they're the first Scots on this show to have a Scottish accent. She's meeting with them. And to do so, she is, I swear to God, wearing a strapless tartan Oscar de la Renta dress, which just, it's just a nutshell. It's just beautiful. In fairness, beautiful. in terms of the audience that show is going for, it's a CW show. There's clearly, a, you know, they're going for a younger female audience. There must be a, some sort of element of, you know, fantasy in that. Just like, yeah, well, we know they would wear this, but we know you guys would probably wear something like this. I, I can't watch Rain. No, for many what reasons, going I can't for. do it. I can't sit for it. <laughs> okay, so, I mean, I think from our discussion, it's pretty clear that there's kind of a division of two different types of inaccuracies, and some of them are constrained just by, you know, budget and physical capability, so costumes fall into that, and, I mean, I guess casting can fall into that, and then there's, you know, pure research, and I think science falls more into pure research because, you know... Um, if you're CGI in it, then it kind of doesn't matter what you're CGI in, and if you're not, then you're just talking about it, and again, so you can talk about anything, and I think we actually specifically have Maya on here to talk about the science, and maybe have a little rage aneurysm. Well done, with the brain fun there. Well done. <laughs> yeah, so, I think there's certain things, I, I think it also depends on, I don't know, for me, there's certain things in science I can suspend my disbelief on. Um, like, well, one of the really common ones is making noise in space that you see a lot, especially in movies. That's, like, one thing. And then it was, like, really big when, like, Firefly and Battlestar Galactica, they weren't making noise in space. Um, but, like, uh, yeah, there's certain things that you do need to do the research into. But then with sci-fi, you get into the speculative things where you're building on, like building on concepts that are real in our world, but then there's an alternate world where things are more possible. And I don't know, I think for me, again, it's like the brain, I'm really picky on things, but like when it comes to physics or mathematics or chemistry, I'm less picky because I don't understand those concepts as well. Um, But it generally does show when you did not do the research. I don't know if that was coherent. No, that worked. I mean, I think the the tropes of, you know, you clock somebody on the head and they're unconscious, but then they wake up a couple hours later and they're totes fine. Totes yeah. fine. Oh, God, don't even get me started on amnesia. Don't even get me started. I study amnesia, so <laughs> you cannot pull that shit with me anymore. And it does not work. Does not work like that. I think uh, another thing as well, something like amnesia is such a tried and 
tested and very tired trope that storytellers have used for many, many, many years now, and it's something that they just sort of fall on. Yeah. Even for now, we know more about amnesia and how it works and how it wouldn't be in real life so such a convenient plot device. But be it for laziness or for just exploiting some favorite tropes, because there are a lot of people who like stories about <laughs> amnesiac women who wake up and are saved by very muscled men. I'm mostly thinking of Pregnesia. Pregnesia. Best title ever. <laughs> Easily. Sometimes I'm distracted by it. I think I tend to be more distracted if the rest of the product isn't as interesting. I'm not particularly scientifically minded, but if it's... Even if it gets to the point where it distracts me, then I think that just shows that it is some sloppy writing. I'm not going to say Prometheus again, but I really want to. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I... So I I watched Eureka for the whole, whole season run, but I actually stopped for a little while because there was, I swear to God, an episode where they saved, there was like something was on fire or something and they saved it with deodorant because Degree was their sponsor and like Degree protects you from like overheating. So we're gonna use it to save the town. And it's just like, okay, you guys have always played fast and loose with the science, but this is a step too far. It's a step too far. <laughs> this reminds me of an interview I saw with Richard Dean Anderson uh, and he was talking about MacGyver and the science of MacGyver. And he said that sometimes, the basic premise was accurate, but the ratios were all off. So apparently there was this episode where he neutralized acid with a Hershey bar. And he said, like, in reality, I need like two vats of chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> but the idea was that chocolate could do it. So we had a Hershey bar. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, yeah, obviously you need to take certain things into account for TV. Like, you can't be super accurate, but you can try. You're not going to yeah. save a town with deodorant. It's just not going to happen. It reminds me like in the yeah. old Batman's where he had like shark repellent spray. That was, was the part. Luckily, I can't. You need to get it right. Oh, I'm sorry. So there was oh, I can't remember where I saw this discussion, but I do know I once saw an entire. It was either blog post video dissecting that line from Star Trek that Han Solo has about his. Whoa, whoa, whoa. fake geek girl alert! Han Solo <laughs> and Star Trek. Star Wars. Did I say Star Trek instead of Star Wars? <laughs> okay. It was okay. It was the Parsecs. It was the Millennium Falcon did the oh, run. The run and Parsecs. Yeah. yeah. And the problem is, you know, like that's not that that the unit of measurement is the word. It's not a time. It's parallax per second. <laughs> so there was a whole blog post trying to figure out like if there was any way that you could use Parsec in a sentence that would make it make sense and what that would mean. Yeah, I've read that one and I like that, I that explanation that, that it's on the edge of a black hole and if you can figure out a way to shave the distance, there you go. This is inserting accuracy in places where there probably wasn't where, any, which is... Where Lucas heard parsecs and went, oh, that's clearly a time. <laughs> Yeah, because I've got sex in the name. Right. <laughs> to be fair, this is George Lucas. I think so many of us have set the bar very, very low for Lucas these days. Yeah, um, but this was before the prequels, so we the bar was true. a little bit higher. True, but even then. <laughs> I guess it depends on which kind of science fiction it is as well. Something like Star Wars is as rooted in fantasy as it is science fiction, because it's mm -hmm. influenced by you know the, the Princess of Mars series. For one, if you compare that to something like what Shane Curtis does with Primer, where he is very, very right. as, as rooted in reality as he can possibly be, although he gets around that by just getting rid of all the exposition, which is yeah. aggravating but kind of amazing at the same time. But man, it's a slog to watch. And I think we're so used to being given that kind of exposition, or at least a basic sort of, you know, cliff notes on how this thing works to get you from point A to point B, even if it doesn't make an entirely logical amount of sense. Right. We're sort of like, like we, we have enough information that won't bug us for the rest of the story, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think there is a fine line between showing your work and just doing an info dump just so people will shut up and stop writing nasty letters to you. Well, that's the thing is, as well, it can be very hard to parse that kind of information in a way that doesn't just come across as 
I copy and pasted this from my research notes and I will stick right. it in this paragraph where the hero does this. <clears throat> yes, right. here, let's have a random paragraph about the black-footed ferret. That is... <laughs> yeah! 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 <laughs> For anyone who didn't get what just happened there, um, like six, seven years ago now, Smart Bitches did an expose <laughs> on Cassie Edwards and her plagiarism issues, which included <laughs> discovering a, a chunk of random exposition in the middle of one of her books about the black-footed ferret was lifted <laughs> from this guy's webpage. <laughs> <laughs> Those, those novels that were pretty much it was just ferrets. It's a fucking ferret, yeah. <laughs> because that's necessary for a book. God. Yes. <laughs> I mean, uh, I think another another thing that writers and showrunners and directors and whatever can do to sort of ground their, especially their historical things is just get the names right. Oh god, yes. Pick, pick names that are plausible for that era. Lola. Lola. One Lola. of Mary Queen of Scots wait, ladies and waitings is named Lola. Never mind they were all named Mary, which I can understand them not doing that because you don't want five main characters all named Mary, but come on, Lola, really? We're doing this. Was her own, was this person's only experience of France from Moulin Rouge? <laughs> I would yeah, Lola is Scottish. Is one of Mary's Scottish ladies in waiting. Yeah, the four Scottish that are named Greer, Kenna, Lola, and Ailey. Uh, <laughs> uh. Oh, I, I see problems there. I see problems there. I see at least three. Yeah. Well, since this is sort of tying into my area, in terms of accuracy when it comes to national depictions or historical cultural depictions, I have probably the lowest tolerance of anyone in Scotland <laughs> when it comes to weird or, uh, or problematic or inaccurate portrayals of Scotland and Scottish history. This is partially because I have a degree in this, because I did Celtic studies, um, but it's also just there, not, there are not many films or TV shows made about Scotland. And they're usually not made in Scotland. Or if they're made here, but they're not made by Scottish companies or writers. So we really only get a couple portrayals a year. And we do have a tendency to sort of nitpick them that way, but it's also because they tend to fall into the same trap. I'm actually... I'll finish reading Outlander eventually, okay? I will, I promise. <laughs> but uh -huh. I've been writing... In connection to that, I've been writing about the tropes that happened in basically every romance novel related to Scotland. And not just romance novels, but also films like Braveheart and Rob Roy, which is the, the, the sort of noble savage trope that is the heroic Scottish male figure. They're usually ginger, but that's okay because 20% of all Scots are ginger. So, highest population of Scots gingers in the whole world. So yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. But it's also that, that what being Scottish sort of stands for in a lot of these stories, which is usually this combination of the clan loyalty and nobility and punching people in the face while getting drunk. And the thing about writing in a Scottish dialect is if you do it wrong, you make Scots sound illiterate. And also people tend to forget, and I will say Diana Gabaldon did this in this book as well, they tend to forget that there are different dialects of Scots. Mm -hmm. We don't all speak yeah. just generic Scots. It would be kind of like having someone from Boston sound like someone from Texas. Maybe not quite as extreme, but there are very obvious differences from someone from Glasgow to someone from Inverness, where the books are set. Right. And I, I am more hyper-aware of it because I know what the different accents sound like. And I can understand what it doesn't talk to some people. But it just seems like such a basic thing. If you're going to go to all the, you know, as an actor, go to all of that research and the time and effort and doing the accent, you could at least pick the right accent. Yeah. And it's Gaelic, not Gaelic. <laughs> <laughs> if you want a film that does Scots dialects right, watch Brave. Yeah. <laughs> because people have that dialect in it. It is great. Yeah. And that not even not even Scottish films do that, that often. And I like translating Doric for people because I know what they're saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but remember, 
Brave is a stereotypically insulting depiction of Scotland or something. Oh yeah, it's an Are example. Are you so glad that somebody pointed that out to you? I'm so glad an American woman pointed it out to me that I was being oppressed <laughs> by gender West and it was exactly like putting on a fat suit because of white supremacy or something. She didn't oh, mean it was how nice of them. I don't care if that's subtweeting. I needed to get that off my chest. That's fine. I mean, we didn't name names. <laughs> 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 uh, Raiden, you know, I mean, there are two very specific stereotypes of Scotland that you'll see in media. There is the Braveheart, Outlander, Highland era sort of historical story, and then there is the complete polar opposite of that, which is train spotting, which is James yeah. Kelman's novels, which is Scotland is full of junkies and, you know, misery, and it's all the Tories' fault. And honestly, that is as exhausting a stereotype at times as the opposite. I, I, it's more grounded in reality and the writers writing that, you know, like Irvin Welsh has a great knowledge of that. And mm -hmm. I do respect that. But there's no happy medium. I quite like things where Scots are happy and rowdy and not shooting up in a, you know, flat somewhere with a dead baby. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like that's a pretty legitimate thing not to want to be portrayed as, like, half the time. <laughs> I do think it is as harmful a depiction, a stereotype as the, you know, the sort of noble ginger punching people in the face. Because the other ginger is punching people in the face as well, they're just high. Yeah. <laughs> but ginger, and that's the important part. Yeah, I know some Scots who are bugged by it. I know Scots who are bugged by Brave, but, you know, I felt like it kind of nailed the sense of humour in a way that very few Scots-centred things did. So. I have some leeway there, but I, I also feel sorry for a lot of my English friends, because for some people, England is basically Sherlock. There's nothing else in England except for Sherlock. Ugh. It is upper class, oh, God. being posh and drinking tea. Oh, they drink so much tea, there's no other drink in England but tea. Did you know that? <laughs> yeah, I was there for a month, and I certainly didn't have coffee or lemonade or water. or Well, I didn't have beer because I couldn't drink at that point, but... Uh, yeah, I only, there was only tea. Only tea. And it's delivered intravenously. <laughs> yes, yeah, they came with my dorm room. Well, that was one of the things as well is that you notice, not just because there are so few depictions of Scottishness, but because when many people describe Britishness, what they mean is England, but they don't mean all of England. They don't mean, you know, Newcastle or Manchester. They mean central London. You know, they don't even mean... Yeah the outskirts of London where most of the people live that are the most diverse and have a large history of multiculturalism. What they mean is upper-class white boys. Mm -hmm. And that, I will admit, that one is that one is pretty damn hurtful because I know that was something that was used a lot against being in the Union when we had our independence vote, which we voted no for! Yay! <laughs> so happy. So I'm really. cheering because Kaylee's happy. <laughs> yeah. well, I had no skin in this game. <laughs> but I mean, that also, that also erases a lot of other people. I mean, Northern Ireland and Wales exist. There are also, you know, the Cornish language or um, Isle of Man where they speak Manx. There are all of these different divisions of Celtic history in Britain and culture and ideas and history. And they seldom get to me because all of the television, like the big TV and film is centered, their, their studios and stuff are in London. So maybe there is just this level of being so insular that they don't realize how insular they are. Mm -hmm. And I can see how that hurts us because I know Scotland are now putting a lot of money into their own studios because Outlander is filmed partially here. We're getting Star Wars at some point as well. So maybe that'll help, although I can't imagine Scottish Jedi. <laughs> that would be awesome. Well, I'm your dad. <laughs> I mean, it's like 90, 98% of US shows are filmed in LA or New York and mostly LA. No, 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 no. 98% of American TV is set in LA and New York. It's filmed in Toronto. <laughs> what I love is that they don't even try to make it look like New York. It's very clearly Toronto or Vancouver. Mm -hmm. Oh god, my favorite is like when we were watching uh, Winter Soldier, they're supposedly in D.C. and there's an outdoor metro station in the middle of the city, which there is not! That is not a thing that exists. They are all underground. Oh my god, that made me so mad. 
<laughs> that was one of the things I loved about Orphan Black is it's supposed to be, or they at least at the beginning said it's set in New York. I think they dropped that quite quickly when they realized that they didn't look like New York in any way. Yeah, I think yeah. they just sort of made it gener generic city. Yeah. They... Clone-topia. Clone-topia. Yeah, I figure it's actually in Toronto. Cause... It always... yeah. Well, no, because sci-fi is like 100% all of sci-fi is filmed in Vancouver. Yeah. Was it Stargate? It's Vancouver. Every planet to visit on Stargate is the backwoods of British Columbia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Arrow's in Vancouver. I'm pretty sure CW Films, I think, in Vancouver. Yeah, yeah CW Films out there, too. Like, Suits Films in Toronto. Obviously, Hannibal Films entirely in Toronto. Well, almost entirely. Yeah, I think it's... Uh, yeah, which is hilarious because I'm from the Northern Virginia area. It does not, more or less, look <laughs> like Virginia. But I'm it's used to that. Nothing in that show is grounded in reality, so I think they can start. It's getting true. Away. It's true. Yeah, like um, going looping back to Richard Armitage again, as oh. we do. as always, as always, as we should. Um, I saw Into the Storm over the summer, which was his tornado disaster movie which managed to differentiate itself from twister enough that i did not regret going to see the movie also he spends a lot of the movie soaking wet so <laughs> so good use of your money good use of my money um but it was set in oklahoma but they filmed it in michigan <laughs> and i see uh, problems there yeah <laughs> and the main problem like i one of my best friends grew up in Kansas, so she knows the Tornado Alley area really, really well. And when she saw the movie, she was like, you know what? The light was wrong. Like, the just the way the light works in Michigan is different than how it works in the Southern Plains area. And the dirt is the wrong color. And that actually made it more enjoyable to her since it didn't trigger the deeply instinctive, I need to go find a basement like right now. Like now. I can see that being an issue. And so that was a case where certainly for someone who knows what the reality would be, the inaccuracies made it better. And I grew up in the, the northern end of Tornado Alley so the light and the dirt looks kind of right to me because it's roughly the same latitude. But one, the fact that kids from Oklahoma would be need to told what to do when the tornado siren went off. <laughs> one, that's bad. That is bullshit. They would know exactly what to do. You go in the hall, you hunker down, you put your hands, your head down between your knees, your hands over the back of your neck, you kiss your ass goodbye and hope you don't die. We did that in Virginia. How did people... Yeah, exactly. And I really kind of felt like my instinctive reaction to the sound of the tornado siren, which I have not heard in 11 years, because we don't have them here in Boston. We've had three tornadoes in the past two years which is kind of worrying. But we don't have tornado sirens and we don't have the monthly tests that you hear during the summer. And the siren went off and I was like, I know this is in a movie, but I really need to go check the sky right now. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's not 1 p.m. on the first Wednesday of the month, so something is clearly wrong. It's interesting the little things that take you out of move in and out of movies, like your friend was saying, you know, the color of the dirt in the sky. I remember watching... Um... Oh, The Widowmaker. Remember, it was the Hollywood movie about the Russian nuclear sub? Yeah. Yeah. And there was a scene in there where um, there two characters are having a conversation in the mat and I guess the mess, the eating area. There's crackers on the table. And it's supposed to be, you know, this hard movie and a hard conversation. But I'm just sitting and going like, crackers. And a Russian sub from like <laughs> the 1950s or 60s or whatever it was supposed to be. Huh. Yeah, no. <laughs> it's just the little things that just take you out of it. <laughs> well, I have a question because you've probably dealt with this more than I have. Is the the you know non-American people 
in films for a long time were just always villains and to an extent still are. Um, particularly if they're Russian. So how have you dealt with just film after film or TV show after TV show where they're all just, you know, it's sort of KGB stereotypes who say nuclear weapons. <laughs> okay, yeah, the accent bothers me. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine. It's well, oh, interesting tidbit. Um, so when the 2009 Star Trek movie came out, Anton Yelchin is actually Russian. Now he was raised in America, but I'm presuming his parents, you know, kept up like speaking Russian to him. So he was faced with the choice of does he keep to Walter Koenig's accent or does he do an actual Russian accent that he knows is supposed to sound like and he kept the fake accent just because you know that's the character and it's not really reality but it was an interesting you know dilemma kind of he was faced with but that's it's interesting it... because in that film simon Pegg's scottish accent is very unlike the original scottish and it's actually very good i think that's partially because his wife is scottish and would have divorced him but there just seems to be this sort of strange difference there that doesn't quite add up I think the the thing is that the nuclear vessels, whatever, is just so distinct, you know? It's weird because, okay, Russians have a V sound. It's the W sound we don't have. Mm-hmm. So the idea that that's the, those we would have problems with those is, is... I think there's actually an Eastern European accent where for which that is true. It's just not, you know, Russian. It's like but, someone did it once and they thought it sounded right, so it just kept going. Yeah. So, but I don't, like, I don't really have too much of a problem with, you know, like, the Russian bad guys. Because, for one thing, you know, uh, Russian organized crime in the United States, like, you know, Brighton Beach and all that, that, that's kind of true. So, to me, that's kind of whatever. I get hung up on details. <laughs> um I was recently doing kind of a marathon rewatch of the West Wing and tweeting oh. angrily at Raiden. <laughs> <That's> hilarious. <laughs> oh my god, Ra- Raiden knows all my rage because that one stupid line, where do you get the nerve from a long hard winter and it just makes me want to crawl under a fucking desk. Oh my god. So stupid, so stupid. <laughs> There's also, that's kind of the episode where uh, the Leo McGarry, the, the chief of staff character, has to tell the president about a problem in Russia, and he says, oh, it's in the oblast region. And I'm like, oblast means region. You literally just said it's in the region region. <laughs> it's a region region. Yeah. <laughs> like, what the hell is wrong with you people? Yeah, and there's another episode where the Icelandic's ambassadors... No, it's the same episode. That's what's so bad about it. It's something daughter and then referred to as a he. No, it's a patronymic. Either he's a son or a daughter of. He cannot be a daughter of somebody. Yeah, there's a lot of um, inaccuracies with names um, that really great, especially... uh, sometimes it's you know the names themselves um and sometimes it's the way nicknames and names are balanced like there's there's you know natasha is never somebody's full name it's only ever a nickname so you have to and you have to you know presumably be in a certain relationship with somebody to just casually address them by a nickname in that same west wing episode by the way uh the chief of staff addresses the russian ambassador by uh, nadia instead of nadia but, you know, so you kind of have to, like, as a Russian, you have to do mental acrobatics. Well, we'll assume they're that, they're, you know, close friends like that. That relationship. Yeah, yeah. that relationship. Which, which is kind of what I've always done mm-hmm. um, with that particular, that, that these people have been working together mm-hmm. for a long time. And here's a blast from the past show that really had needed me to suspend tons of disbelief, and that was Alias. <laughs> Alias, uh, being closer, you know, to 2000 than 2010, uh, and therefore closer to the 90s, continued that that train of, of American shows, which whenever characters travel to Russia, they also travel back in time to the 50s. <laughs> There's one episode where the main characters of Alias are in Russia, and I swear to God, it's like sailors in 1950s uniforms crowded around at an ancient radio receiver <laughs> you know like world war ii is happening outside i don't know oh, but how else would you know it was russia and not just <laughs> perhaps 
big fur, fur hat. hat. <laughs> it's fur just... hats everywhere. Oh my god, it's um, it's so bad. It reminds me of an anecdote I heard about. Do you guys remember the Val Kilmer movie, The Saint? Yes. Which is actually no. like I love that movie, but it's so ridiculous. <laughs> it's so absurd. It's but so ridiculous. She hides the secret to nuclear fission in her bra. <laughs> of course she does. Where else would you hide it? That movie, and that movie actually filmed in Russia and hired some Eastern European, not necessarily Russian, but Eastern European actors. But they had a, a scene set in a nightclub uh, where instead of like your usual nightclub fare, they uh, had, you know, uh, they fired a group of, I guess, like local Roma actors and be like, yeah, do Roma folk music. And uh, the director once said in the commentary, is like, yeah, we had like our Russian crew come up to us and say, like, y- you know, this is not actually what we're going to listen to in a nightclub. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, the Arrow gets honorary mention here because as Raiden and I like to quote to each other from time to time, there is no word for optimism in Russia. Despite the fact that the Russian word for optimism is literally optimism. <laughs> Literally, that's the word. That's the word. Awesome. <laughs> Alina has feelings about things. <laughs> yeah. So. You know what? No, no, no. I have to bring one thing up. It's very short. Uh, there was a series of uh, urban fantasy books. Uh, for anybody who knows them, they're called uh, Bureau 13. I think it's like a trilogy. If any of our listeners want to come and say I've read them too, that would be awesome. I read them originally in the Russian translation, and I didn't realize how much the translator actually had to clean up because the, and I, then I, I hunted them down in like the original English. They're they're written by a North American by a U.S. author because I wanted to own them and I wanted to read them in the original. And um, he decided he was gonna have a Russian character, except apparently like he didn't want to go out into like a Russian deli in New York and ask them for a few words he could drop into the book. No, no, no. He was just going to make shit up based on something he probably heard in the movie once. So his Russian character refers to her lover as, I think it was supposed to be grandmother, but he misspelled even that. And at some point I'm sitting and staring at the page and I'm like, what were you even trying to do here? Like, that's a term of endearment for you? You remembered one Russian word, that word was grandmother, and you were like, I don't even care. I'm just going to, that's going to be the term of endearment she uses. And you get to spell it wrong. And then you spelled it wrong. It was, uh, and of course, like, this was actually written originally before the fall of the Soviet Union. So she was uh, escaping the, you know, like the KGB. Um, so, you know, she had to say Tavarish every, like, two words, because how else would you know that she's a communist? Except then he des- the books were republished after 91, and he decided he was going to move everything up a decade. So at that point, she was no longer the right age to escape from the KGB or anything, but everything stayed the same. It was, <laughs> it was amazing. Oh, God. It just it hurt the soul. That's amazing. Yeah. Fortunately, I guess, the, the main depiction of Minnesotans that you see in media is Fargo. Uh, and the the movie I mean the the Coen brothers are Minnesotan so they they're they're Minnesotans who got out so they know they they know about what they're talking about (laughs) and it's not and it's not always flattering I know that there were a lot of people who were like oh we don't talk like that and it's just not yes you do <laughs> it's a little bit exaggerated in the movie but not a lot not a lot and the show definitely kind of has the feel I love the show I love the show so much I the just feel... finished watching it a couple of weeks ago it is really brilliant it's so good and the feel of these small pockets of civilization on a landscape that is trying desperately to freeze you to death and how that will fuck you up if you don't know what you're doing um is very it's very correct i mean they filmed in calgary so they got 
kind of the the idea of the upper plains area up there they got, got that spot on and Allison Tolman man I wish oh, she'd won good. so good I can't wait to see what she does next another show I need to add to my list yeah you do everyone should um just, just ignore Martin Freeman's accent. Yeah, I mean, I've heard worse. I think I've heard the thing worse. about Martin Freeman is he's like Sean Connery. He can really only do his own accent. So if you're aware of that, then it's probably not going to bug you as much as it may bug some. Yeah. I mean, his, it was... I've heard worse. I've heard better. Um, you know what? It's Arnold Schwarzenegger's entire career. It didn't, like, get in yeah. his way. No, yeah. I, I Martin Freeman made a credible attempt at getting the, the accent down. And he certainly had kind of the hapless idiot who just is way in over his head part perfectly nailed. Because, well. It's kind of his type. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because, yeah. <laughs> Um, he played so, Mr. the Bird on stage. I want to know how hapless he was in that role. I'm just imagining Richard the Bird bumbling around with a hunchback, just wide-eyed and going, "Oh, what's happened here?" <laughs> <laughs> I've got to kill the Princeton Tower. Just fantastic. You know I, what? We've all heard Martin Freeman's like real-life comments. I believe he could play an asshole. Oh, uh, for sure. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and God, I'm going home for my sister's wedding in a couple of, like the weekend after the election actually and my accent's just going to be like ridiculous when I get back <laughs> we're going to have to record the episode like right then yeah. so you can get full, full accent maximum Minnesota I think Alina's had a bad influence on me because I was I got a taxi home on Wednesday from my grandmother's and the taxi driver was asking why I was up there and I was like oh I was having tea with my grand and he went oh it's, it's Women, your grand. Oh, fuck off. I thought you were from Canada or something with that accent. What? What? <laughs> Apparently, I, I infected Keely. Apparently, I have picked up a Canadian accent from somewhere because. No, the, you the, don't. The, you I don't, don't sound a Canadian to me. <laughs> I didn't think I did either. I'm now really paranoid about my accent because apparently, according to people in my hometown, I sound like a foreigner. <laughs> Wow. I don't know. Maybe if you thought you were from Newfoundland. Yeah, that was just a side of it. I'm still thinking about that. I have no idea where it came from. It scares me. Did you just like say the word A and he assumed only Canadians do that? <laughs> Which I find myself doing. You know, it's one of those things where it's a stereotype. But then why do I say it all the time? I catch myself. Because sometimes stereotypes are rooted in a kernel of truth. And it's a thing that Canadians do. I say y'all. I've just accepted it. Well, I say y'all too, but I I pick that up from Southern friends, and yeah. it's it's just a really handy word sometimes. Yeah, my mother. It drives my mother crazy because she's from Connecticut, and she firmly maintains that she did not raise us in the South, but she moved us to Virginia, so she has no. Yeah. Yeah. It's the South. Yeah, and I know that there are people who are like, no, the Boston accent, it's totally exaggerated, and real people don't talk like that. No, the people you hang around with, a lot of them are transplants, or certainly upper middle class, or have been educated enough that they tamped it down, don't talk like that. If you talk to the labor guys and the more blue-collar areas, and go to towns like Everett, and Revere, and Lynn, and Concord, and Chelsea, and places like that, oh yes they do, oh yes they do. <laughs> and there are times where I've been talking to someone on the phone, and I've had to like take a minute to completely recalibrate my brain so I can understand what the fuck they're saying. <laughs> It does not help if the phone connection is terrible. <laughs> but it's just like, 
no, that that is an actual accent that people have, and if you kind of limit your interactions with a more upper class crowd, then you're not going to hear it nearly as much. <laughs> oh, before we wrap up, I'd like to introduce one more point of an like inaccuracy that we just don't have a representative sample in, but I'm married to, and that is when you are in the military and you watch a military movie. <laughs> Oh, God, I can't even imagine. In honor of anybody who's ever been in the military, I present to you Independence Day, that scene where Will Smith <laughs> is flying away from the alien. And every time we watch this movie, and that is once a year, my husband will always say, that plane does, that jet does not have a fucking parachute. <laughs> <laughs> Independence Day is probably like one of the worst movies that I genuinely love and genuinely want to rewatch at least once a year. It is yeah. The science of that one just kills me. Tomorrow, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, let's talk about that's... infecting a. Oh god, the computer virus. Oh god. <laughs> oh god. We gave it a cold. <laughs> oh god. I think Roland Emmerich has so straddled the line between stupid and delightfully stupid for so long. You've kind of just um, rolled around and gone, oh, Roland, except for Anonymous, which just genuinely pisses me off. Yeah. Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare. Okay? <laughs> if you're yeah. not best on, oh, but he didn't go to university, you're a dick. <laughs> you're a classist <laughs> dick. Yep. Anonymous is great because the entire plot is based around the fact that Queen Elizabeth had so many children that she ended up shagging one of her own kids and having a double incest baby. Oh my god. I, I'm sorry. I I think I hallucinated <laughs> for a minute. And I thought I heard you say that the premise of this movie is that Queen Elizabeth had so many children she fucked one of her own kids and had a double incest baby. Yeah. <laughs> That is not what happened. That was a hallucination. What did you actually say? <laughs> That's one of the most upsetting of things I've ever heard. <laughs> such a whore, she couldn't keep track of all of her incest babies. <laughs> How old was she when she had sex with her incest um, she was being played by Julie Richardson, so she hadn't turned into Vanessa Redgrave yet, which is what happened. Oh, to God. Hey, Mom, I found this great script. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is also a film where a guy is going for a garden and he kicks a Tudor rose. Oh. <laughs> Tudor no. roses aren't so No. No. You know what? I have been to the garden where the. Uh, I think it was an inner temple. Where, like, did I just, I, oh, I can't, I can't, I'm done, I can't, nope, nope, sorry, fucking <laughs> Tudor Rose out of garden, that is a bridge too far, I'm done, no. This is a film that posits that, um, Christopher Marlowe uncovered the secret conspiracy that Shakespeare doesn't write Shakespeare's plays by watching, I believe it's because he watched Hamlet, even though he died about five years before Hamlet was ever performed. Oh, God. There's a scene in it where Marlowe and a couple other playwrights are sitting around and going, this guy's amazing, he writes plays and rhyming verse, this is completely new, and it's like, all of you write plays and rhyming verse. All of you do that. This is not you, you know what iambic pentameter is, you've been doing it for a while now, Marlowe. Please tell me no one took this movie even a little bit seriously. How, how good does Shakespeare in Love look to you guys now that you know this? Oh, <laughs> so much better. But that's the thing is, there are respected Shakespearean actors like Derek Jacobi and Mark Rylance who have said there may be some truth in this argument. There's not. <sighs> Mark Ryland, really? Oh, I've so much lost. I just, I've lost yeah. so much respect for. I just, I'm done. I'm out. I'm out. The thing is, Roland Emmerich really seems to believe it as well. It's like, just because you made a film where the earth became completely frozen over in six days doesn't mean that you have to believe everything you've written. They outran the cold and shut the doors against it, and that stopped it. <laughs> books because apparently burning the wood furniture was too hard. <laughs> I mean, I would like to think that they started with 
the outdated computer manuals, but probably not. They probably started with Shakespeare. But Shakespeare, anyway, so who gives a fuck? <laughs> you liar! <laughs> okay. Well. I feel like that was a good note to end on if we I completely so. <laughs> so. Alright! This has been episode 25 of Anglophies. I'm gonna take my broken brain and go away now. <laughs> oh, we hope you've enjoyed it. We, uh... And thank you, Maya. Thank you, You're Maya. You're welcome. Um, your Twitter is Papaya Junebug. Yes, that's... Tumblr, and uh, you blog on your school website somewhere. Yeah, we, uh, we have a writing group for my graduate program called Neurite SD, and uh, I actually have a post going up in, for Halloween week, a uh, book review of do the do zombies dream of undead sheep? Excellent. So. That's a great we'll title. Be, <laughs> we'll be sure to link. And thank you very much for joining us. How how was your first first podcasting experience? I was fun. I hope I didn't you know make an utter <gasps> fool. Of myself, oh, we were your first. Oh. I know. I know. Okay, <laughs> so we're all gonna go and uh, sacrifice three avocados and some scotch. And a muffin. And a muffin. <laughs> and a muffin. And we will see you all next month where I believe we're going to do a survey of the fall TV, how we feel the fall TV season has been going. Yes? Yep. We have thoughts. We have thoughts. Some of them involve how Stephen Amell has not been shirtless nearly enough this season of Arrow. Maybe like, they'll fix it by then. Maybe they'll fix it by then. I you have a month, CW. <laughs> That's right. You have a month. Editors, get back in the bag. You're not <laughs> done. The same. Um, you will enjoy it. The campaign will be over and I'll be able to catch up on a bunch of things. <laughs> Make sure she's at peak Minnesotan accent. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Um, so, thank you very much, everybody. Here's to another two, three, ten, whatever, years. Bye! Bye! You have been listening to Anglophies, a made-of-fail production.